0: You <takes noise>
1: Welcome to Cinema
0: Journal Presents Akin Media. I'm Christine Becker.
1: And I'm Michael Keckman.
0: And here we are in September, a big month for those on the semester system. I believe most of us have started. Uh, it's also then the time when, now that everyone's back on campuses, search committees are forming and job mm-hmm. calls are being written up and candidates are gathering together their goodies.
1: An exciting time.
0: Scott, exciting, scary, all of those. Not really
1: very much like Christmas, but...
0: No, no. But we are back then with part two, because you heard part one in our previous episode of Stephanie Brown's segment on the job market. So we're going to bring you part two, and this is uh, extra long as well. And so we... It's so good this is going to be the only segment in our episode.
1: Although we might sneak in in the middle just because,
0: speaking
1: for myself, I have a big mouth and it's hard (laughs) not to be like, ooh. ooh."
0: (laughs) Yeah, the first half of her segment is basically a montage of advice. And so we're going to montage ourselves right into it. And then you'll hear the second half of it, which is um, longer interviews with particular people. And we'll let Stephanie explain it all. She She does such a fantastic job putting together both of these segments while Getting a job herself, a really incredible moment for Acromedia, I think. Yeah. Yes. And I think this is some of the best stuff we've ever had on Acromedia. So, so thank you, Steph, for all of, all of your hard work with this.
1: All right. Let's give this a listen, and we will check back in. All right.
2: And for me, it always felt like that one moment from the movie Teen Wolf with Michael J. Fox, where his buddy Styles shows up at the party and he brings this big keg of beer and he's thinking, I'm the cool guy, I brought the keg. And then they point him to the kitchen where there's like a million other kegs. Like that's what earning your PhD is like. It's like, yeah, you got your degree, but now what?
3: Welcome to part two of our two-part segment on the academic job market. I would highly suggest you listen to the first part before embarking on the final leg of the journey, but to recap just in case. Earlier this summer, I solicited survey responses from folks about their own experiences looking for a job or sitting on a search committee. In the first segment, I discussed the results of the survey and talked to several academics who have been open about their own job search experiences on social media and who are doing work within SCMS more broadly to tackle larger issues of academic precarity. If the first segment was about venting and commiserating, this segment tries to focus on concrete advice for job seekers, concrete steps we can take within institutions to make the process less burdensome, and on alternative avenues for producing scholarship outside of the traditional tenure-track career path. First, we're going to hear advice collected from our interviewees and from our survey. Then we'll hear more from Jennifer Mormon about the Women's Caucus report and proposals on academic labor and job searches. Then we'll talk to Lori Morimoto about practical advice for becoming an independent scholar and for supporting independent scholars. And finally, we'll get an update from Mark Stewart about his own job search. As a refresher, the voices you'll hear in addition to Jennifer, Lori, and Mark are Yena Kucherko and Diane Elliott, scholars who are collaborating on research on adjunct labor and the job market, For this episode, we were also given expert advice by Kristen Warner, associate professor of journalism and creative media at the University of Alabama, and Todd Sedano, an associate professor and director of film and television studies at St. John Fisher College in Rochester. First, you'll just hear a bunch of advice featuring folks reading some of the survey responses combined with snippets that we pulled from the interviews that we did for the episode.
4: Go early, like in grad school, you feel like you're not ready, just apply because A, you never know. And because it's such a time consuming process, it's it becomes much easier later on in the subsequent years, making you just build on whatever you have done already.
1: Get organized. Get all of your boilerplate material together before the fall cycle begins.
5: If you start on those materials early, then you'll have sort of like a foundational piece. And of course, you're going to tweak for every job that you apply for. But um, you know, once you sort of have those foundational pieces, it becomes much easier.
6: As you are preparing your materials, at the same time, prepare yourself mentally for the process of submission and not hearing back or rejection and bad letters that say you aren't being considered. All those parts to it, you know, prepare yourself as as best you can for what that can be, and try to still maintain some sense of positivity. You can be excited and be positive about it. And if things aren't going good, just try to stretch that positivity as much as you can until the very last drop, because that is what will keep you boosted and keep you healthy, because this the market is also it just it's so mean.
5: Do what you have to do and don't beat yourself up.
1: Do one application per day or set goals for yourself. Um, It requires
2: some soul-searching, it requires some deep introspection and reflection to think, you know what, I don't have the this, that, or the other thing that they're looking for. I really need to position myself better uh, when I apply for these positions. I need to uh, write my cover letter better uh, to account for why I don't have the X and the Y and the Z that they're looking for.
7: I would say be conscious of how you're expending your time and energy. Yeah, I'd encourage people not to waste their time applying to every single job (laughs) in the field that crosses their paths. Only apply to jobs that you would actually accept, and that means putting the time into researching the location and the position in the university before taking the first step of applying, and put the time up front into making sure you would actually want this position.
2: There's a tightrope walk between casting a wide net by applying for everything for which you might seem qualified and being selective about a position that you might grow into. There's no perfect position that suits both your research agenda and teaching interests and that exists in your favorite geographic region. And so you hope you can apply your current abilities to the advertised position and then grow yourself, the department, and the school.
5: Use the job wiki judiciously. It can easily become a time suck and anxiety producer, but it also helps to have a place where people can receive off-the-record updates.
8: I find it useful in the sense that it lets me know when I don't need to be worrying about a job anymore. I would say that the only thing you're ever gonna find out from it is bad news, but personally, I would rather know that I've missed it and, and be able to move on.
7: Uh, you know, I would encourage people to check as many different job boards as they can uh, because a lot of, you know, there's also no standardization about where these jobs are listed.
1: Foster relationships with early career full-time faculty because they're the ones who have been on the market most recently and actually
8: understand what's happening. I, I am never going to downplay the importance of networking. I, I, for me, that has been absolutely what has got me through. It has been what has helped me along the way. It has been what has encouraged me, attending conferences, meeting people, social media, having those discussions.
4: I reached out to my friends who have gotten jobs and I reached out to faculty in my department when I was a grad student and said, who are the people you hired? Would you mind sharing their cover letters and research statements? And you see there's a structure to many of them.
6: If you a person of color, woman of color in particular, my advice is to find your mentors, to find not just people who are in your department, not just your advisors and your committee members, but to try and stretch your network. Sometimes it takes a little bit of bravery to go to somebody at you know a conference and say, Hello, how are you? You know, could we talk or could we, you know, email each other about work? When it comes time to going on the market and trying to figure out you know who as you develop in in your career who will be your letter writers and who will do all the who will help you sort of think about other jobs or help you revise your work and all those things those women of color mentors but that's kind of what we do. And because in film media studies are the, the field of, of black women in particular, black folks in particular is so relatively small. Like we all generally know one another. So the more people that you can sort of talk to that stretches your network, the more of us that we can sort of connect you with. It makes it more of a community, be brave and go to caucus meetings, go to SIGs, talk to the people at SEMS and say hello, get email addresses, build those kinds of communities and those kinds of networks.
1: I was always told that you should spend 80% of your time tailoring letters for the top 20% of your applications. But every application needs to be tailored to some extent.
2: Address the ad. A lot of time goes into crafting the wording of the position that we're searching for and sometimes candidates simply cast a wide net and hope that it will cover all of the positions for which they think they're qualified, but they often forget to read what exactly it is a department or program is looking for. And do your homework on the institution. Do you send this exact cover letter to every school? Do you even know where we are or what we do? And obviously spell check and proofread your materials too.
5: One thing that I've seen that is sort of a kiss of death is if you don't research the institution and the department, you need to be able to speak intelligently about the institution. I think it conveys interest. I'm always impressed when candidates say things like, you know, I was looking online and one of the things that really struck me about your institution is blah, blah, blah. And sometimes it's stuff that even I didn't know. And that goes a long way. I'm the kind of person that when I would get an interview, I would get really, really nervous. And so what I found is that I had to really prepare for my interviews. But I have like a list of every question that was ever asked of me, and I would go through those over and over and over and over again until I was saying exactly what I wanted to say. Not you know, not so much that it felt like I was reading off of a paper, but enough so that I felt comfortable saying it. The search committee is rooting for you. The last thing on earth that they want is a failed search. So, you know, know that you're going to flub a few answers and know that it still could be really okay. Don't beat yourself up over that one or two questions that, you know, you you, know, you didn't know how to answer. And, you know, and opinions form over time, right? So if you can answer some of those early questions really, really thoughtfully and well, then people are much more forgiving on the back end when you flub the questions that you didn't think of.
6: Remembering that this is not personal, that this process is completely impersonal and idiosyncratic in some ways that make it hard to sort of figure out what is it i can do personally right what can i do to fix it sometimes it's not even think nothing about you it's the it's the process it's what goes what goes on in the search committee room it's all those things and so maintain your positivity finding some ways to get some agency and to take some ownership back from this process that can just erode your confidence and then also remembering that this is not a direct attack on you or your scholarship or your personality or your anything
4: I feel like, oh, the Skype interview went really well, and I don't get an interview, you know. And and sometimes I feel like, oh, Skype interview, I totally messed it up. And then I, I get the invitation to, to the campus. So it really just, it's not worth your time to obsess over it because you have no control. <laughs> you did all you could. You have no control over what happens next.
7: I think with imposter syndrome, with so many of us being kind of vulnerable and precarious positions, we think that, We don't have a leg to stand on if we want to object to something. And what I've learned in my four years on the market is that if you stand up for yourself, that will often make the committee respect you more and see you as a colleague rather than a candidate. And so it can actually work in your favor as well as sort of helping everyone in the field because the more people advocate for themselves, the less committees will be likely to exploit
4: us. Don't take things personally. (laughs) Um, Often getting a job is a result of many factors that are absolutely out of your control. Uh, They have to do with department fit, um, politics that you are not aware of, uh, funding, the timing of you being in the job market. So although it may feel like a personal rejection, it's not, and so don't don't let it affect your self-worth
6: also be thinking at the same time about other things that you can do so that in other words, if this does not work you are not beholden to this process, constantly beholden to this process over and over again and letting it boss you and instead like get, getting some ownership and taking some agency to think about other things that you can do at the same time.
1: Wow, lots of good stuff there. That is chock full.
0: And something, you know, you might even want to listen twice to make sure you catch everything because it's just loaded with good advice. Lots of nuggets. Yeah. Any nuggets you would add to that?
1: One of the things that I was thinking about is that um, I think part of learning how to be a good job candidate and also ultimately learning how to um, interact across multiple disciplines as a scholar is getting over that that initial sensation that every job that you apply for and every department that you interact with or or end up working in is going to be structured similarly to the ones that uh, that you know well you know from grad school or whatever there are people um who are regulars at scms who are in english departments and some that are straight up film uh film and media studies departments some are communication departments and then they're also within multiple um institutional hierarchies so i was thinking about myself you know and we we both came out of the same graduate program and i don't know if we ever really thought about about how that department sat within the university and what its relationships were to other departments and then you know down at ut i was in a in a radio tv film department that had Um, a constituency of comm studies folks as well as as film and tv people but now here at notre dame it's a we're characterized as a fine arts department within a college of arts and letters and so there's every place is different and it's really really tricky and but a very important to be able to narrate your relationship to the multiple fields of the folks that you're interacting with
0: and here's where I should jump in and tell my story which will make everyone hate me because oh. I'm an academic unicorn. I had one interview, I got the job and I have tenure now. And I wasn't the thing is I wasn't planning to go on the job market. I went on the market when I was still finishing my dissertation and so I started a visiting assistant professor finishing my diss and and I went to Notre Dame because I was um I knew that Don Crafton from UW Madison mm-hmm. had gone to FTT. Uh, excuse me, to, had gone to Notre Dame and and my particular department, film, television, theater. So I knew I had someone there, and so I was even able. and He became the chair of the department. So I knew I was interviewing for a department that would be similar to the kind of thing I had, I'd experienced yeah. at UW. Or at so,
1: minimum, someone who understood right. your pedigree, you know, yeah. understood where you came from and what sorts of work you were interested in. So
0: I'm sorry to all of you <laughs> who yeah. don't have that. I mean, I, I had an incredible lucky story. So I'm probably not the best person to come to for advice on what to do on the job market. But I can tell you I have been on maybe three or four um, search committees now. So I can give from that Mm -hmm. side. Um, And a couple of things that come to mind. One thing is cover letters are hugely important. I know this touched on a bit in the montage, but we're going to look at all your CVs. We'll look at your accomplishments. um, But narrativizing them in in the cover letter, putting a personality to them is really important. And that's where, kind of speaking to what you were just saying, that's also where I can place you in my department, where you tell the story of here's my book, or here's my article, or here's the kind of classes I teach. And you tell that story through what would that mean to this department? What kind of person would you be in this department? That opening paragraph, grabbing me with who you are, some aspect of your personality, or writing style, hugely important, because that's, you know, that's going to be, especially if a whole stack of them, yep. that's the one I'm going to read most intently.
1: And it is storytelling. Yeah, it really, really is.
0: The other thing that comes to mind, hopefully this, not
1: like Fake storytelling.
0: (laughs) Right. You want to be honest. Because you you do want to, you know, if you're going to be at that place, you have to be who you are, and you want that to be honest. The other thing that comes to mind, and here I'm drawing from... Uh, some advice that Kristen Warner gave. Uh, I, I talked to her for this segment, and she brought up search committees should be very specific with their job calls, that if you don't want to have a situation where you're inviting a bunch of people who don't have a chance at the job to you know, send in their stuff, make it specific. She even advocated, sort of like when you're making up a call for papers and you put bullet points, do that with a job mm-hmm. call. And I know search committees don't want to be too narrow because you might have someone who seemingly is kind of on the fringe and ends up being the perfect person. But at the very least, you know, what kind of fields do you want this person to be in? Um, That can help, you know, weed out some. And and again, so that you're not wasting someone's time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that comes through in the the comments so far is lots and lots of um advice to candidates to do their homework but mm. departments need to do their homework too. Yeah, yeah, essentially and really and, and, think this through and make it clear.
0: Yeah, and maybe even, you know, hopefully listening to this segment and hearing what some of the concerns are that applicants have and taking that into account when you're writing up a job call or running a search.
1: Good advice.
0: Well, let's get some more. Here's some more of this then. stuff. This, yeah.
1: is, this is really, really good stuff.
0: Yeah. And Stephanie has some more interviews here. And then I'm not going to spoil anything, but a really a killer ending, a really good ending that puts kind of a nice bow on both of these segments. It's an ending with heart. It is.
3: So that was concrete advice for those of us looking for jobs. What about concrete steps larger institutions can do to make the job search a little bit less burdensome? In the first segment, I talked a bit to Jennifer Mormon about structural issues of academic precarity as they relate to job searches. Jennifer has been instrumental as the Women's Caucus Junior Faculty Representative in spearheading several efforts over the past three years to tackle issues of academic precarity. And today, we'll hear more specifics as to what those proposals are and what the Women's Caucus is trying to accomplish.
7: Uh, this year's SCMS, I, at the Women's Caucus meeting, I called for the creation of a list of best practices around... Uh, The hiring of tenure line candidates primarily, but also of sort of labor practices for contingent faculty, similar bodies like the MLA, like the National Women's Studies Association had both released Statement. So I was sort of asking for SCMS at large to draft such a statement. But, you know, I think what we decided was if we start with the Women's Caucus, then what we're doing is asking SCMS to draft official proposals. At this point, we're kind of more pointing out problems than solutions in some cases.
3: We'll eventually get into a few specifics pertaining to job search best practices from the report. But I also wanted to acknowledge that the report more broadly covers labor precarity and that I will include a link to the report in the show notes. So please check it out and read about these proposals in much more depth.
7: Cynthia Barron and the Women's Caucus more broadly drafted a list of proposals shortly thereafter uh, and sent it around at this point to other SIGs and caucuses. The document kind of starts by acknowledging that an organization like SCMS has no legal authority to collect data from academic institutions or to force anyone to adhere to best practices, but that there are ways of exerting pressure, much like the AAUP has has accomplished in the past with regard to tenure
3: procedures and academic freedom. I also asked Jennifer what SIGs and caucuses could do to help generate momentum behind these proposals.
7: You know, as academics, we believe that Any sort of solution should be backed by research. And I think SCMS is recognizing that this is a serious issue and, you know, is willing to address it. So we need to kind of work together to agree upon what that looks like and, you know, advocate for it. If every SIG and caucus can take the time to discuss, uh, maybe modify the list of best practices develop and circulate proposals to stimulate research related to precarious labor. And we're asking SCMS to try to specifically seek out proposals for workshops and seminars and papers on this topic to sort of see it as a topic worthy of presentation at CMS regularly. So if SIGs and caucuses could maybe create informal panels, sponsor panels, workshops, and seminars related to precarious labor and uh, the job market and so forth, then that would help to stimulate research, which we would then be able to use to support our proposals
3: and so on. So what are some of the job search best practices? Here are a few highlights I pulled from the interview, but like I said, you should check out the linked report for a fuller picture of all of the proposals.
7: First of all, that the initial application should require no more than a VITA cover letter and the names of three references, because honestly, one of the most challenging elements of the job market is tracking down your referees to get letters. There should be a limited and standardized set of documents required for later stages. You know, maybe we'd come up a list of a list of five or even more and everyone sort of picks and chooses from them because departments are going to have different needs. But I think it should be easy enough to limit it to a few documents so that we'd only have to tweak them. Another one is that initial interviews should be conducted by a telephone or video conference rather than at conferences or on-site to ensure, obviously, that people don't have to pay to attend a conference in order to interview. And then another is that the interviewee should be given 10 to 14 days to prepare for a campus interview. And finally,
3: what do Jennifer and the Women's Caucus ideally hope happens as a result of this report? I think
7: it's reasonable. Um to request that hiring committees at least reflect upon this. But what I would really like to see is that SCMS works together, ideally with other bodies like the MLA, to create a list of best practices that universities across the country and even the world can kind
3: of agree upon and hold each other accountable. So what about those of us who won't end up finding permanent tenure-track jobs?
9: I really, really wish that people would sort of let themselves sort of imagine something different.
3: We talked to Lori Morimoto about advice for sustaining yourself as an independent scholar and ways that the media studies community at large can help to better support and encourage independent scholarship.
9: Basically, I just, you know, I do want to say to people who are sort of lingering in the pit of despair, the the valley of the shadow of death of, of the job market, Uh, and wondering, I, I, I can't say don't despair about your job chances, because I think that's endemic to the whole situation. But I will say that there are other avenues, and they do depend on having access to financial resources to keep you living and there are a lot of us who are trying to make a go of independent scholarship I would say you know think outside the box how could I how can I support myself and still manage to do some scholarship you know I'm not beholden to uh, anyone in terms of what I write about how I write about it you know personally I'm trying to take advantage of that position to see if I can't contribute to pushing the needle a little bit further along the, you know, evolutionary trajectory of film and media studies.
3: Laurie talks specifically about the way she maintains her visibility online and promotes her scholarship.
9: Well, Twitter is actually one of the places where I'm most active. Uh, I do try to stay active in conversations about academia, about media studies, about fan studies, which I do. Since I don't have a university tweeting about my work or writing up my work in a, you know, university magazine, I really have to be on the ball about just constantly putting myself out there and saying, Oh, I published this thing. Oh, you need to see this thing. Here's a conversation that's talking around this. Well, I wrote something about this. Here's the link, Uh, which feels really obnoxious to me. But on the other hand, it does get me seen. This is going to sound like tooting my own horn and i don't mean it that way but i've had a couple of people say you know you're you're one of the the up-and-coming or leading figures in our field and i'm like i'm so not if you look at my list of publications they're so sad but uh i think the visibility more than anything and the fact that people know my name has given me a certain degree of presence that i have to create myself i just there's nobody helping me out
3: She also added that doing service, while it doesn't pay anything, unfortunately, also helps her grow her visibility within the media studies community.
9: And doing service, people do get to know me through doing service. Uh, I was uh, running the web stuff for the Fan and Audience Studies Special Interest Group. And I'm currently doing the web stuff for the upcoming Fan Studies Network North America Conference. You know, that, that's entirely dependent on my willingness to do work and not get paid, which is essentially all I do.
3: She also talked about the importance of open access publishing, both for increasing access for independent scholars and also for growing a larger readership for media studies and for keeping up with trends that are rapidly changing within media and communication.
9: The political side of that is I don't want to publish in a journal that I, I can't access myself. The way people will know my work overwhelmingly is through what's available on open access. Uh, and I do think that it's actually something that as a field we need to be taking much more seriously. Mm-hmm. Flow, I thought, I think is a terrific site. Uh, I thought that uh, Antenna was wonderful because it gets scholarship out there
3: she also noted that this was a big thing that those with some clout in institutions could do to help not only independent scholars, but all media studies scholars in general.
9: Push for greater recognition of things like open access publishing, um, online journals, uh, video essays, you name it, um, the kinds of scholarship that our current media moment sort of demands from us. And yet we're really having a hard time living up to because we are so stuck In a paper journal publication model, I I think if we were going to start pushing for something that would be one of, you know, within institutions, that would be one of the things I would, I would recommend is, you know, push for recognition of this work, because it's valuable work, it's more visible than a lot of uh, paywalled work. And the sooner I think that that kind of thing is becomes acceptable for a tenure dossier, the easier a time independent scholars will have sort of making that kind of scholarship work for us as well.
3: Conferences also came up as an important way for precarious scholars to maintain visibility and network. Conferences, of course, also bring up the problem of access being tied to economic privilege.
9: I also think that conferences are one of the the key ways to be seen and to become visible. I know that there are people who are staunchly opposed to it, but I really do wish we had regional conferences throughout the year because... That it just, it, they're smaller, but it makes it so much easier for especially uh, early career scholars and emerging scholars, graduate students, to actually make the connections they need to make in order to become more visible. In the best of all possible worlds, I do wish there was a dedicated fund for independent scholars and people who are self funding. If there were even something where, you know, in a given panel pr- proposal where you could say, you know, up to one person is allowed to Skype in their presentation, I think that would open it up to the possibility of more participation from people who are marginalized. I I think there are ways to make it work that don't necessarily have to fly in the face of accepted dogma about what a conference is for. Yes, it's for networking. Yes, it's for talking to people. And given my druthers, I would always prefer to do that. But sometimes you just can't.
3: Finally, Lori wondered if precarious and independent scholars could take a cue from trends she saw in media industry, an environment we know is also rife with labor precarity.
9: Some of them pool together resources for a sort of rainy day fund when somebody needs money for a conference or something else. Uh... They promote each other's work. They work as a group. Now, this is obviously media industries, but, you know, where one goes, they bring their cohort with them. But it it, it seems exemplary representative of the kinds of creative thinking that I think we could employ in, in film and media studies to use the resources available to us to kind of conduct scholarship outside institutions. You know, we always sort of hit the wall of access to materials and in particular, obviously, journal articles.
3: Yana mentioned that collaboration and sharing of resources was a way that scholars in her field not only push science scholarship forward, but also help to pull up scholars who lack the institutional resources necessary for producing new research.
4: I think this is definitely happening in psychology. The fields are going, moving more toward sharing data online, and so there are lots of places where you can go online to find data sets that are publicly available, that you can use and reuse for your own purposes. Um, And I think that helps when you don't have an infrastructure or money to um, collect your own data. There's a um, website called Databrary. um, And on Databrary, researchers are uh, uploading Videos from the data collection, you know, and uh, other researchers can use them to answer different research questions. Yeah, it just it helps everyone move science along. Um, Why go through the efforts of collecting your own data if other people have done it? Uh, If someone is in a position where they don't have a lot of institutional backing but they have access to secondary data, um, I think that's a really, really great way to keep publishing. It's really hard to get anything done yourself. That's why it helps to network, uh, to build lasting relationships, to collaborate and help one another share
9: data. Unless academia changes and universities suddenly open up entire tenure track lines or full-time lines or whatever, this is what we're looking at in the future. And right now, I think we're, we're in danger of losing an entire generation of scholars to precarity. And you know, I, that's one of the reasons why I decided to be an independent scholar, because I didn't want to lose what I have to say. When I talk to graduate students, there, there are people whose work I don't want to be lost. And it will be if their visibility is completely dependent on having a full-time tenure-track position.
3: The key takeaway from these segments, I think, is that we all need to work together to solve the bigger issues of labor precarity. We may be looking for jobs as individuals, but the only way we're going to push the field forward and to keep scholarship from being lost is to band together to raise everyone up. And speaking of raising everyone up, we have a positive update from our good friend Mark Stewart, who we talked to more extensively in the first segment and who I think exemplifies the ethos of helping your fellow media scholars.
8: I'm pleased to announce that I have since received a job offer to be a senior lecturer at Coventry University. I I don't want to underplay the vast amount of luck which there is. I, I think that that's sort of one of the things which, which I've come to realise, just how much you happen to be the right person in the right place at the right time. What, what I did a little bit differently on my end for this one is that Certainly, in the preparation for the interview, I did a lot of research on the institution itself and much more about what the institution is, what their values are, where they're trying to head, um, how they see the balance of teaching and research, where the institution sees themselves in 5, 10, 15 years, where they're wanting to be. uh, And where the department to some extent sees themselves as fitting within that. The parts of the interview that 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 I felt from my end went across best were when I was able to connect the questions that they were asking me to how, how that fit within the university, the institution as a whole, and how I saw myself fitting within that. So it was sort of being able to position myself as someone that was very happy to take on you know, a not insignificant teaching load, but also being able to say, and here is how my research is going to be able to benefit the department as the institution goes forward, looking to position itself as one of the top ranked institutions in the UK. In terms of the the support networks, I have been incredibly lucky. I think the other thing which has kept me going is a realization which I came to the best part of now 10 years ago, that this was really what I wanted to do. And so I've sort of just had that to, to cling on to, knowing that it was something which I, which I love doing, looking ahead and sort of saying, well, if I don't get it for the next 12 months, what is my plan? I find the the, the 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 most basic work that I can find in order to to pay some rent and and put some food in my mouth, and I spend that twelve months writing the book, or I spend that twelve you know those twelve months doing the edits on the um, on the journal article, so that when I'm back on the market, I'm that much sharper.
3: So take that bit of good news to heart, and good luck to everyone on the market for your first or tenth time this fall. And remember to be good to each other. And please read the show notes to find out more about the issues we talked about. Thank you so much for joining me these past two segments and to Acamedia for indulging me in this segment. I've actually been producing this show as I moved to St. Louis for a visiting professor job, which has been its own emotional roller coaster. All that to say, I'm right there with all of you. Feel free to start a conversation on Twitter with me about this segment. I'm at Steph Brown.
0: Well, there you go. We and I'm very glad we got to end with that follow up. That we didn't know before we did segment one that that Mark was going to get that job and oh, it came that's through. Maybe so it's Acha Media karma. We got the good Ooh. karma and it's no, it was all Mark. It wasn't our karma. Yeah, but, he earned it. Yeah, we're at least glad to have captured that narrative. We talked about the you know the mm-hmm. cover letter being a narrative. We've got now Mark Stewart's job narrative that uh, we'll look forward to seeing how that turns out.
1: Yeah. And of course, now, you know what we're going to have to do? What do we have to do? We're going to have to uh, hit mark up to keep talking to us. Um, <laughs> and maybe to be in dialogue. Oh, sorry, Steph. I think this, this means homework for you, too. But um, <laughs> an ongoing dialogue about that, about that first semester and first year.
0: That's right. That might have would to actually be actually be pretty great. Yeah, the next step of that. And we look forward to seeing how Stephanie, who started at St. Louis University, how those early, uh, early days go and what kind of adjustments you have to make and those Every those are place challenging. Is different.
1: Times, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. But it's so good to to um, you know amid all the all the chaos and anxiety of of the of the job market to have those two going off to uh, great new places.
0: Yes. So we do have we had what was it two episodes ago our very special episode but we warned it didn't have that kind of neat ending. We do have kind of a neat ending, but we do realize Uh, There are plenty more stories out there of difficulties and and ongoing challenges. So we hope these two episodes uh, that Stephanie Brown has put together, these segments, we hope that this really genuinely helps people, if at the very least, not literally help someone get a job, at least help, psychologically speaking, people understand better what they can go through and how to fix some of the problems that are out there.
1: And to amplify some of the advice that came up, keep talking to people, keep networking. It can be incredibly helpful at least emotionally, if not very, very concretely and practically, to just keep the conversations open about opportunities and challenges.
0: And we should note, uh, Stephanie also has a Google Doc that she's posted of the survey results. That, so you can have uh, a place to go to to look at advice, a hard copy, basically, of this advice. And I presume she'll keep it open. So if people want to add advice, if we've left anything out, you can uh, include that. Also, if you'd like to email us, uh, info at aka media. Is that right?
1: Dot org.
0: Dot org. Is that part of the email yeah. too? Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. right. They have that part too in or emails. Or
1: on Twitter at...
0: Akka underscore media. That's it. That's how you can reach us. And our website, akka-media.org. Yeah. I get confused with Man. the whole... There's well, so there's many... Th- there's so many Syntax. Symbols. Yeah. It's, it's a whole... All this has come on too strong.
1: Yeah. Man, I just have to say one more time. Mm-hmm. Such amazing work that, that uh, Steph did with this complicated, challenging topic. Yeah, I
0: think great with the topic, great with just, you know, podcast form, like putting mm-hmm. together really listenable segments. And, and like I said in, at the start of this, I think this is some of the best stuff we've ever had on Media. So thank you for, yep. for doing that for us, Stephanie.
1: You rock. All right. ACMedia is produced with the support of the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame.
0: And the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we also couldn't do this without help from SCMS, so thank you for uh, uh, supporting us, SCMS.
1: None of it would be possible without the golden years of Todd Thompson down at the University of Texas, as well as Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University.
0: And we couldn't survive without help from Stephanie Brown at St. Louis University, Joel Mm. Neville-Anderson at University of Rochester, and Frank Mondelli at Stanford. And that's a wrap. And so we'll come to you next month, hopefully with more useful advice and happy thoughts. About life.
1: Yes, that's what we do
0: here. We'll we'll keep plugging away. (laughs)